Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Gina Poe, who is Professor of Integrative Biology and Physiology at UCLA. Her lab investigates the mechanisms by which sleep traits serve learning and memory consolidation. Welcome, Gina. Hi, wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting yes. me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, you sent me a few papers. I've, I found all of them extremely interesting. I didn't understand all of them, but uh, I found them interesting. Um, <laughs> So, so I want to start with one of your older papers from 2006. Input source and strength influences overall firing phase of moral hippocampal pyramidal cells during theta, relevance to REM sleep reactivation and memory consolidation. You say in simulation studies using a realistic model CA1 pyramidal cell, we accounted for the shift in mean firing phase from theta cycle peaks to theta cycle troughs during rapid eye movement, REM sleep, reactivation of hippocampal CA1 place cells over several days of growing feminization of the environment. I, um, I've been talking to a lot of neuroscientists, um, Jira, uh, and my ignorance is slowly uh, moving up, I think. Um, and so place cells, I remember, is sort of a marker for um, location, environment, yeah. and so on. And so, yeah. so is it uh, so is is it that your models here get familiar with the environment, and yeah. over time the firing patterns change? It's really fascinating. Yeah, that's exactly right. Wow, you you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> um, this is a paper exploring how it's possible that we consolidate memories from the temporary storehouse in the hippocampus to the rest of the cortex, and then how that, that consolidation signal gets fed back into the hippocampus to tell the hippocampus that no longer needs to store those memories in the novelty encoding uh, pathways 
So it can erase the novelty encoding pathways because it's already been consolidated. And um, so it's kind of an auto, it's a circuit based signal that tells our brains that we no longer need to save things in our RAM because it's already been written to the hard disk. And so we can refresh the RAM of the hippocampus and, and allow it to be um, able to learn new things throughout the rest of our lives every day. Um, otherwise, our hippocampus would get saturated with these old memories. And so yeah. when we learn to become familiar with a place, for example, um, that map of the place, which is mapped in the hippocampus and continues to be mapped in the hippocampus throughout our lives, um, that map, however, is stored in a parallel and distributed fashion throughout the neocortex. And then when we return to that place, the cortex says, ah, you know, this book is over here, this door and window are over here. Um, we're in this place and the hippocampus says, oh yes, I recognize that, that's familiar. I don't need to remap it again. But if there's anything novel in that environment, the hippocampus can recognize through its novelty encoding circuitry what is novel and then react, act, be activated that activate that novel circuit in with the familiar and then during sleep sow that new piece of information into our old schema. So this paper explores how that's possible on a circuit level, on an electrophysiological level with that theta activity that happens in rapid eye movement sleep and also when we're learning and then also with the neurochemical environment. Yeah, it, this is so interesting for me, Gina. So, you know, I do some work in AI and the biggest problem in AI is discarding information. Ah. And so as new information comes in, we have to sort of value the new information yes. and see if it is useful, right? Yeah. It appears that the brain has some sort of an optimization uh, function that yeah. says, hey, I already know this, so yes. you know, don't worry about it, right? Yes, yes. That's exactly what this is getting to. And it's so exciting to me because so it had been known for decades that rapid eye movement sleep was important somehow for consolidating the things that we learned. And consolidation means writing from the RAM to the hard disk and, um, you know, for a permanent memory structure, storage structure. But, um, but there had been a hypothesis by Francis Crick uh, back in 1989 that said, well, you know, maybe REM sleep is really for clearing the brain of all the things that we no longer need to remember all of the extraneous information that we learned during the day that would just fill up our brain with crap. And so um, maybe we just need to erase. And that's why REM sleep is important for learning and memories for erasing it. Well, sleep researchers who had done these decades of research showing that REM sleep is important for consolidating memories said, oh, Francis Crick, you know, his his area is different. What, what does he know about sleep? You know, um, and it was a hypothesis, but it wasn't it wasn't, it didn't propose an experiment or a test. And so um, in in the late 90s, when I got to the University of Arizona, I knew they had a way that I could test that hypothesis. Is REM sleep for learning or is it for forgetting? And so I, know I was really excited to do these experiments where I could see whether the hippocampus fired during REM sleep in a manner that's consistent with strengthening memories or for erasing memories. And what I found was something that I hadn't even guessed, which was that the hippocampus was active in a manner that's consistent with strengthening new memories that had not yet been consolidated 
and weakening old memories that had already been consolidated. So in the same REM sleep period, the hippocampus was activating these different memories in opposite phases of the theta cycle to strengthen and erase, dependent on the consolidation state of that memory. And so I spent the next six years trying to figure out how that is possible, because there is a set neurochemical environment during REM sleep, um, there's the set pattern of theta activity, and how is it possible that the hippocampus can distinguish between memories that have been consolidated and memories that hadn't. Um, so I explored it with um, a mathematical modeler, Victoria Booth, who had worked with theta activity in the hippocampus slice um, in a laboratory uh, in New Jersey. And she had just come to the University of Michigan, where I was at the time. And we started a conversation and we started exploring papers on it. And she was the one to tell me that theta phase was opposite in two different layers of the hippocampus. And um, then we looked at norepinephrine and serotonin levels and how that changes with REM sleep and then re receptors in the hippocampus. It's just so elegant, complex at the same time as just beautifully elegant. Um, so maybe AI could learn something about, you know, um, having the system automatically report whether or not something is familiar and then automatically erase if it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a true optimization problem, right? Given a, given a, a, a limited capacity, mm -hmm. uh, the objective function is how do I best utilize that capacity? Yeah. And there's a lot of extraneous information that we, we pick up all through the day. Yes. And so if I understand this correctly, Gina, what you're saying is that during the REM sleep, there's some sort of an optimization program going on that says, yeah, this information is important because I don't already, I don't have it. I don't have it stored. Yeah. So I'm yeah. going to store it. Mm -hmm. This information is not useful because I already have it, let's say. Yeah. That's sort of item B. And yeah. item C might be that, yeah, this information is interesting, but I don't necessarily have to store it. You know, right. I saw a cat. <laughs> at the 1 p.m. Uh, outside <laughs> the door. Yeah, it's interesting, but you know, do I really yeah. have to store that information? Exactly, exactly, right. Um, and so what we don't know yet, what's still a complete mystery is how we tag the things that we want to store and don't tag the things that we don't, or maybe the opposite. Maybe we tag the things we don't want to store and tag it for erasure, um, mark it for erasure. We don't know the answer to that yet, but I do think it has something to do with the attention systems of acetylcholine and norepinephrine, um, maybe even serotonin and the receptors and what happens inside the cell when these things are active because the noradrenergic system, the noradrenaline system, which is like adrenaline, um, but it's noradrenaline for, for the central nervous system, and that gets activated whenever something is novel and, and we switch our attention. It helps us switch our attention to pay attention to it, um, adds acetylcholine to that whole mix, which helps us to learn quickly. Um, so it might be that when something is relevant and, and we can tell it's going to be important, we don't know exactly why necessarily it is important, but it seems like it's going to be important that we add these tags, which um, are added through norepinephrine. And there have been some great research by other people showing that these tags might be related to the things that happen inside the cell um, when we're learn when something new comes along. 
Yeah, so, so if I think about this sort of a decision tree perspective, so I could first recognize that it's novel or commonplace, let's say. That's right. the first node in the decision tree. Yeah. If it's commonplace, maybe I don't want to spend too much time on it. So I go on the novel track. Mm -hmm. Then I say, do I already have it stored? Um, mm -hmm. Then I don't have to worry about it. So it's novel. I, ha I don't have it stored. Then I have mm -hmm. to worry about it. Yeah. So is is it as as simple as that? I, I'm making it sort of mechanistic in my mind. No, but, I think yeah. it is as simple as that. I I think it involves at least three different neurotransmitter systems. It involves at least two different circuits that come into the hippocampus. Um, but I think it can be as simple as state and um, the anatomy, the anatomy, the way it's, the circuit is set up. Yeah. So, so we're going to get into this in the later papers, but so if you don't have REM sleep, mm -hmm. then the brain is, so there's garbage. Um, there's, there has yeah. to be garbage collection, so to speak, right? There's garbage yeah. sitting there and yeah. the brain hasn't sort of sorted through it. Is that the way to think about it? That is the way to think about it. Yeah. I think of wakefulness as kind of a giant party that the brain is having. And um, the, your guests in your party are bringing gifts to you. It's like a housewarming party, maybe. And um, that's analogy, an analogy. Um, if something traumatic happens, it might be like a guest has brought a bull into your party <laughs> and it's doing all kinds of damage. Um, and, uh, and then what you have to do is once the party is, all the guests are gone, is you need the cleaning crews to come in and sort out what are gifts, what is trash, and um, you know, what do you need to put away and how do you put it away within your home so that it makes sense and not just put it in random spots. And that all happens during sleep when the party guests are gone. Um, and if you've had a traumatic memory, a, a traumatic event, you need to lead that pull, bull out into the backyard rather than you know, wreaking havoc in your house. And um, that requires you know, special work and a, and a way to sort things out. If you can't do that during sleep, then that bowl stays in your living room. <laughs> that is not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I think we're going to talk about this later, Gina. So um, so the traumatic memories, uh, it creates a lot of stress to the brain. And, and so um, there is an objective to sort of um, either forget it. Uh, I don't know what the right, uh, right methodology might be or or utilize it less in some way. So that's also happening during sleep, right? Yes, yes, yes. So that's the current hypothesis that I'm working out with uh, researchers around the world, Australia, um, the Netherlands, and, and the United States. Um, the idea is that stress in, increases the amount of this norepinephrine, this noradrenaline um, neurotransmitter that I talked about. And it's really important that that noradrenaline level be zero during REM sleep, which it normally is. But if you get REM sleep that's too soon after the traumatic stress, when the producer of noradrenaline is, is still excreting tons of it, then that sleep becomes maladaptive. And instead of um, re weakening those aspects of the memory that need to be re weakened. I mean, you don't want to forget the trauma, but you want to weaken the emotional parts of it at least so that when you remember the trauma later, you don't have to recall all the fight or flight, you know, um, 
sensations that your body doesn't have to go through all of that again. You can remember the semantic facts of it. You can incorporate that into the schema of your life um, and the episodes, but you don't have to tie into that memory all of the emotional aspects. And I think if noradrenaline is still present during REM sleep, you cannot weaken those synapses that need to be weakened. And instead you continue to strengthen as though it's happened yesterday throughout the rest of your life until you can break that cycle. So when one of the abilities to avoid post-traumatic stress disorder might be to avoid REM sleep altogether until your noradrenergic system has calmed down and you're able to find some peace, make some peace, okay, and in the future, I'm going to avoid this this way. Find a way to come to a place of peace so that that noradrenergic system is not any, any longer telling you to fight or flee, and instead you can breathe and relax. And then when you go into sleep, it becomes adaptive and, and does what it's supposed to do, weakening the emotionality from the facts. I mean, this is not implications for sort of therapeutic interventions too, right? So if I understand you correctly, Gina, what you're saying is that if you have a PTSD type event mm -hmm. and then you have REM sleep soon after that, it actually counter, it, it, it's sort of the negative way in some some sense, right? Um, yeah. yeah, that that is- It strengthens the trauma instead of weakening it. Um, the trauma it reinforces reinforces the trauma instead of yeah. weakening it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, my tendency, you know, if I have a lot of stress, I, I typically say I'm going to sleep a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but it has to be REM sleep, right? It has yeah. To be yeah. Sleep it has to be REM sleep, and um, so it might be that it would be good to have slow wave sleep um, to, um, you know, release. Growth hormone is, gets released really strongly during slow wave sleep. It clears out debris. Um, it does a lot of good things. Uh, but if you go into REM sleep while your locus realis, your which is a source of noradrenaline in your forebrain, is still active, it would be it would be bad. So it would be a great therapeutic um, intervention, a biomarker, for example, would be great to develop to tell whether or not your sympathetic nervous system is still too active while you're sleeping. So it lets you go into slow wave sleep, but if it sees you slipping into REM, it says, uh-uh, no, your sympathetic system is too high, you need to wake up, or it gives you a drug or something that helps you, your sympathetic system be not listened to while you're in REM sleep, so your REM sleep can be adaptive. Um, it would be, I think this is a really good target for therapeutic interventions. And I think it would be good even if people have had PTSD for years. I think you could still do this adaptive work in sleep if you're able to modify your sleep after you've recalled the trauma. Yeah. I mean, the, the beauty of this observation is that um, it is it is a, it has a negative effect, meaning so if you have a, a bad event mm -hmm. and you go to REM, mm -hmm. it reinforces the bad event, right? That, that's mm -hmm. what you're saying. Yeah. And so in some sense, you have to keep people away from REM mm -hmm. uh, post the, the, the PTSD type even. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you you have a very, very small window there. Um, mm -hmm. A very small window. So I'm thinking, you know, somebody dying or something like that. And uh, but that is an in you can intervene. 
uh, with that within that window. Yeah. Um, and so it is actually good for people to talk to somebody really, you know, sort yes. of suffering. Yeah. Um, don't let that person go to sleep. So yeah, to sleep. let them work it out first. So yeah. the, the problem with talk therapy right after a trauma is that sometimes it just continues to keep it fresh in the person's mm. mind. And it continues, they continue to, the stress remains for longer than it would otherwise. So that's actually counter counterintuitive or counter what you want to do. Um, so if you have talk with someone, which I think is a really good idea, if talk with them to, to help you find that place of peace, to help you resolve, what did I learn from this? If there is something to learn, how can I avoid it in the future? Um, you know, how does this fit in with my life and how does my worldview, um, if you have a worldview that would help you, you know, analyze this trauma and come to peace with it, then how does that worldview, how does this thing fit in with my my life and my worldview? Um, that's all a good thing to do. Whatever helps calm down your sympathetic nervous system. And for some people in some traumas, it might be best to deny, deny, deny instead, right? Um, maybe one way to calm down your nervous system is to just kind of put it out of your mind and pretend it never happened or, and, and that can be a very powerful tool as well. Um, you probably have to face it someday, but hopefully at a time when you're more ready to face it. But if you can face it now and you can come to a place of peace within the few, first few hours of the trauma, then, then wonderful. Then that would be a great thing to do. Is there sort of a chemical intervention that prevents REM? Oh yeah, lots. <laughs> Okay. Lots of things prevent that, including alcohol. So, yeah, okay. yeah. one of the things that I heard that British soldiers do, and you know, after a buddy has, uh, ex, you know, uh, experienced a trauma in the theater of war, is they get them drunk afterward. And um, that, you know, might not be such a bad idea if um, if it prevents them from going to REM sleep, even if they do go to sleep uh, for a certain number of hours, I would not recommend it forever, but you know, maybe that first night, you know, being drunk would be not a bad thing, but there are a lot of other things that prevent you from going into REM as well, including just staying awake. Right. And one of the things that neurologists often, or physicians often prescribe if someone's been through a physical trauma um, especially if the physical trauma could affect the brain, like be a concussion or something like that, is they recommend that you stay awake for a certain number of hours. That might also help prevent that trauma from the psychological trauma from being written into your, overwritten into your memory structures. So. Yeah, yeah we could talk about this forever, Gina. Um, I want to go to some of your other papers. Um, okay. So 2016, we have uh, another paper, uh, so different simultaneous sleep states in the hippocampus and uh, neocortex. Yeah. Uh, you said we found that hippocampus and neocortex independently progress through sleep-waking states. Yeah. Challenge the utility of single EEG, electrode, and purely behavioral characterizations of states, as well as canonical views of sleep as a global phenomenon. Yeah. We suggest that, suggest that electrode location affects the scoring of states with implications of prior sleep and sleep deprivation studies. Yeah. So it, it sounds a bit like the brain is sleeping in different different parts in different times. Yeah. Uh, 
and, uh, <laughs> and you cannot really say the brain is sleeping, right? Right, yeah. So it used to be thought that the brain slept homogeneously. Um, then we learned that in certain mammals, like uh, who are at sea, like whales and dolphins, who have to breathe, they have to come to the surface and breathe, um, that they can sleep unihemispherically. So one hemisphere can be asleep while the other hemisphere is awake. Um, it was never known and still not known whether or not that one hemisphere that's asleep can go into REM sleep. But uh, we do know that every animal that we've been able to do the measures of probably have two states of sleep, including um, REM and non-REM sleep. And so, um, so we still don't know the answer to that. But that was the first indication that it's possible that part of the brain can be asleep while another part is awake, at least. Um, then we learned through um, some research done in Switzerland that particular areas of the cortex can be in deep slow wave sleep while other areas of the neocortex kind of don't look like they're in deep slow wave sleep. So the amplitude of slow waves and the presence of slow waves can appear in some areas and not others. And that can happen more when you're sleep deprived. Um, even when you're awake and doing a task, there can be areas of your brain that look like they're fully asleep. <laughs> Have you ever seen someone um, that's kind of zoned out? That's probably what's happening is parts of their brain are asleep while other parts are awake. And um, But still, those are all non-REM versus waking kinds of distinctions. Um, what we've never seen before um, until this paper in 2016 is that portions of your brain can be in the dream state of sleep while other portions are not. And this happens normally. And this is in rats. We did a study in rats. And another, Ernesto Duran, did the study uh, the next year and found the same thing. Um, he was doing a study in Germany, um, but also in rats. So we still don't know if this is also true in humans. However, you know, rats and humans share so much commonality in so many other realms, it's quite possible. So actually, right now, um, one of my graduate students is looking at some human um, sleep data with electrodes um, implanted deep in their brain versus in the cortex. And um, yeah, I, I'm excited to not report yet, <laughs> but it's going to be, I think it's going to be really, really neat to see. Yeah, I mean, it makes sort of an intuitive sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? So predation um, would have been a major threat um, for animals and humans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and so it makes sort of sense if you can, you know, let some parts of the brain, you know, sort of attentive yeah. when the other part sleeps. Yeah, say. yeah, yeah. And, you know, and there are dissociated states that are kind of not fun, like um, when you sometimes wake out of, up out of REM and your whole brainstem isn't hasn't released your muscles from moving yet, so you're para paralyzed, that's no fun and it's kind of scary. That's a dissociated state. Um, there are dissociated states where sleep intrudes into wakefulness. It's called confusional arousals, and that's that's no no good either. So these dissociated states can be dangerous and and bad. Um, you can have REM sleep without atonia, where you know you're your brainstem isn't in REM sleep where your your forebrain is dreaming vividly. And so you can act out your dreams. So it's um, it's better to have everything, you know, proceed in a very um, lockstep manner. However, um, it might be that some of these states when you're 
when your forebrain is in slow wave sleep and your hippocampus says in REM sleep, they, it happens quite normally. It happens even more often in animals that have learned something new. So it might be that it's actually doing something unique, special to have this dissociated state. Um, and it might be very necessary for consolidating memories or integrating new things into old information. We don't know the answer to that yet. That's, a, that's an area. Yeah, it has nothing to do with energy, right? So, uh, you know, so in computers, for instance, um, you know, we have a way to get to a computer. So it has a CPU, mm -hmm. it, you know, then gets stuck sometimes. Yeah. So we have to sort of go a different way to restart the computer. Yeah. Um, neuroscience uh, hate me because I, I sort of make some connections to computers. It's nothing like the other. So <laughs> it seems to me that, um, yeah, so there's some objective uh, mm -hmm. in terms of them, all the stuff mm -hmm. that we talked about before. Yeah. But either there is some danger, some, some risk um, that you need to worry about, or you need some sort of a reset mechanism if, if things are not quite what we what you thought is going to happen. Yeah. Is yeah. there sort of a reset um, yeah. possibility? Yeah. Um, so one of the cool things is that throughout sleep, our forebrain, um, orbital frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, all of that is really off. I mean, metabolically, it's really low in activity. It's done its work already. It has done the work the old day it was working, and now I say, I'm, I'm gone. I'm done. Yes, and I'm done. And if you're sleep deprived, your prefrontal cortex has to work twice as hard, involve many, many more areas in order to accomplish the same tasks. So that off state is seems to be really important. The one time during sleep when that, pref then that prefrontal cortex is on, is um, during a transitional state when the hippocampus is firing bursts of activity coincident with reactivating memories and the prefrontal cortex responds and reverberates in a sleep spindle mode. Sleep spindles are about one and a half second long um, waves that are coordinated between the thalamus and the, and the neocortex. Um, the hippocampus, the thalamus projects to the hippocampus, the hippocampus back to the thalamus, the thalamus to the prefrontal cortex. And somehow during these brief periods of time, the prefrontal cortex is really actively responding to the hippocampus. And it, that might be when we're sowing new information into old schema, um, but it's brief. Yeah. And so it might be these, these dissociated states are when this happens, you know, um, that it's brief, but it's super powerful. It can rewrite our memories. It can change our minds. It can um, change the way we see the world, and and um, and so it might be it might be a really important time um, of maybe it's the reboot. I don't know exactly <laughs> what you would how you would um, have the analogy in computer world, but um, it's a time when you're rewriting your uh, what is it called kernel or something. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so would you say, Gina? So. So the hippocampus is sort of, you know, sort of working through all the data mm -hmm. and trying to determine which one is more important to store and, and uh, which ones are good to discard. Mm -hmm. But it may not have the sort of the algorithms. Uh, so it has to go to the, you know, sort of the prefrontal cortex to say, say I got bucket A, bucket B, mm -hmm. which, you know, which one do you think uh, I should store? Yeah. Uh, do you think that's happening? 
Yeah, we don't know how, but one of the things that we are starting to discover is that the brain is a lot more modular than we imagined, especially the acetylcholine, which is the attention sort of um, neurotransmitter. That system in the basal forebrain, the bottom part of the forebrain, um, was thought is a pretty small cluster of neurons and it projects all over the brain. And it was thought that when they were, it was doing one thing, the whole brain was in that state. When it was doing another thing, the whole brain was in that state. We now know that there are modules of attention so that it's not like we just overall are more attentive or less attentive, that, that we put acetylcholine in those areas of the brain that need to be doing that task. And other uh, areas of the brain don't have as much acetylcholine that there is, um, there's a structure to that. And it's the same with this noradrenergic system I talked about with stress and attention that's also modular. It's a cluster of, in the rat, it's like 3,000 neurons on each side. And that's very, very small. It's a very small area. So how could it be modular? But it is. <laughs> Somehow it's still yeah. modular. Dan Chandler and others at, um, in Pennsylvania have been showing that. Yeah, I can see the prefrontal cortex, uh, you know, saying to the uh, hypothalamus that, you know, I thought I thought I was done, you know, I yeah. thought you got this, you know. Yeah. And then it comes yeah. back and say, I got bucket A, bucket B, you know, which one do you think is more important? And they say, you know, I did my work all day. Yeah. Now you can figure this out yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, they work together. Thankfully, they work together. Um, the yeah. hippocampus can tell the cortex, these are the new things. I know most of this is familiar, but... Look at these new pieces of information. Could you fit that into your schema somehow? And I think during sleep and, and only during sleep when noradrenaline is not present is when the prefrontal cortex can loosen the schema to fit in the new piece of information and discard other pieces of information that no longer should fit into that schema. Um, like, so, yeah. So do we see activity in prefrontal cortex, fairly high levels of activity during REM? So again, prefrontal cortex is off during REM and it's off during slow wave sleep. And the only time it seems to really be active in, in coordination with other areas like the hippocampus is during these sleep spindles. And um, so, yeah, that's that at the transition from non-REM to REM sleep, it's a very transient state, a unique state in terms of neurotransmitter levels, totally unique in terms of the presence of these sleep spindles. Sleep spindles are really cool because um, your density of sleep spindles correlates well with IQ, you know, your intelligence quotient. So, and your ability to learn across sleep. Um, if you're able to increase whatever baseline level of sleep spindles you have, if you've learned something new and need to incorporate it into your forebrain, your density of sleep spindles goes up. And so, and if it doesn't, you don't incorporate it. So it's not a yeah. transition between REM and non-REM, you said, right? Yeah. The, so that's where sleep spindles are active. Yeah. Yes. Um, so in some sense, uh, so if you have a lot of density, a lot of activity there, mm -hmm. it, it's basically, um, I don't know what the right term would be, but the hippocampus has sort of a, a way to get to the prefrontal cortex and get the answers very quickly. Yes. So that, you know, it can it can make whatever decisions it has to make. Yeah, they're reverberating together during those sleep spindles. It's really, really interesting um, it, because we used to ignore sleep spindles and that transition state because it was so short. It was so brief. People didn't think it must have been very important. It was just a transition from one major thing to another. 
But in fact, it might be that it's so brief because it's so powerful. You really don't want to be rewriting your entire personality and all your schema every night. <laughs> you want to only do it for those things that are necessary and only as much as is necessary. Right. So, so in this paper, you have a rat study uh, where we're looking at um, uh, measured electrical activity and score sleep-waking states directly from the brain structures of interest rather than interfering states of neocortical electrical activity. So, I mean, rats are quite similar to us. Um, yeah, they are. <laughs> and so, so what's sort of the, the, the major conclusion from this paper? So the major conclusion is, first of all, we shouldn't ignore anything. And in fact, there is no, you know, useless transitional state <laughs> that everything is probably important um, and that we really need to be um, measuring sleep from the structure that we think we want to test. For example, if sleep is for learning and memory, you can't just expect to slap a couple of surface electrodes on the visual cortex and and assume what the rest of the brain is doing from, from that. Um, you really need to be recording from those areas of the brain that are involved in learning and memory and where it is that you want to be writing those memories. Um, so you need to be recording from those structures rather than, and that's problematic because in humans, um, electrophysiologically, we can't see very deep with these surface electrodes. We actually have to implant them deep, which is dangerous. You know, it's it involves surgery and, you know, the risk of infection and all of that. So um, we still need to use animals, I think, to um, get at some of these questions. And, um, and then those precious few people who do have depth electrodes implanted for whatever reason it was needed to be implanted, we need to, you know, really mine the the data from that to see how much can we translate what we find where we're finding in rats and cats to to humans. So, so you said at very highest level, you say consequently, electrolocation affects mm -hmm. estimates of sleep architecture, state transition timing, and perhaps even percentage of time in yeah. sleep states. So. Uh, what, what you're saying is that we can't really just get data from certain locations of the brain and make conclusions. Yeah. Uh, because it seems like there some some parts are sleeping, some parts are doing work, and yeah. then the ones that are doing work goes to sleep, and our parts wake up. So it's sort mm -hmm. of um, a, a very complex, um, modular uh, yeah. architectural system. I right? think that's what you want to call it, modular, yes. and. Um, it's problematic because with sleep deprivation studies, for example, if you want to see is REM sleep important for memory, you can wait until someone goes into REM sleep, wake them up and assume from one, can't, you cannot assume from electrodes in one area that you're waking up the whole brain and disturbing REM sleep in the whole brain. It could be that the hippocampus can go into and out of REM sleep without the cortex ever registering REM sleep at all. And so it might be the hippocampus is getting three times as much REM and under certain circumstances like an intensive learning period than the neocortex is getting. And so, you know, if you don't see an increase in REM after a certain learning task, you can't necessarily say based on neocortical um, studies that REM sleep is not important for consolidating that task. Yeah. Yeah, I often uh, often think about, you know, the Pink Floyd song, there's somebody in my brain, it's not me. <laughs> a lot of, it seems like there are a lot of people in the mm -hmm. brain. Um, 
Hillary. Well, you know what? It's interesting you should say that because the first time I saw a video of neurons migrating to where they're going to go in the end during development, it really looks like you're looking at slugs making decisions about where the food is or something like that. You know, it extends a philopodia this way and retracts and extends it this way and then this way. And then it says, okay, really, this one's the best. And it the whole neuron follows. So it's making decisions. So it's almost as though your brain is filled with billions of individuals making decisions, talking to one another. It's almost like our brain is a city um, or maybe a universe full of communicating um, entities that um, do different tasks, different parts of it. Do different, you know, there's those that take out the trash. There are those that, um, you know, are lawyers, you know, or whatever. There's a whole city that needs to work together. Um, so yeah, I don't yeah. think there's one one other person in your brain. I think there are billions <laughs> of, of. Yeah, I mean, one could argue that every neuron mm -hmm. is sort of like a person. It might have a personality. The yeah. hysteresis it has gone through uh, yeah. over over time yeah. sort of defines its personality. So how it will fire given mm -hmm. information also yeah. changes over time. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it is mind boggling. You know. It is mind boggling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are those who believe that the seat of consciousness is in the microtubules, which are in every neuron, in every cell, actually, you know, it determines its shape and it's where it will go and what it connects to. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the seat of consciousness is. It um, shifts every time I do a new study. <laughs> Yeah, it's something that humans uh, attach a lot of importance to. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, we say only, you know, a lot of people who have done a lot of work in consciousness say that only humans have consciousness. And they kept asking, how do we know this? I mean, uh, we you don't. know, obviously. <laughs> and I don't believe it. I don't believe it for a second. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what could go all the way to the extreme? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, even self-consciousness, which is thought to be the highest form of consciousness, conscious that you're conscious and conscious that you're separate from another in individual. I, you know, you look at dogs, they can be very self-conscious, you know, um, they can they can be ashamed. They can um, be embarrassed. Cats can definitely be embarrassed. And, um, uh, you know, I, I definitely don't believe that that's what we should base um our we shouldn't hang our hat on that because we don't even know what consciousness is and even when we do no matter which way we define it we can find animals other animals that have have some form of it yeah i mean there's a huge definitional issue there's a huge sort of theory of mind issue we don't mm -hmm. really have a theory of mind yet so we can make up anything and you know um it <laughs> wouldn't let us go anywhere so, so uh, I want to go into another paper uh, from 2018, Unraveling Why We Sleep, a quantitative analysis reveals abrupt transition from neural re reorganization to repair in early growth. Mm -hmm. So you said sleep is known to serve disparate functions, uh, most notably neural repair, clearance, and reorganization. Yet the relative importance of these functions remains hotly debated. Have you created a noble mechanistic framework for understanding and predicting how sleep changes as individuals grow? This was mm -hmm. really interesting for me. So um, I don't know if it's this paper or, or the next paper, sort of the two different things. One is sort of the temporal relationship on humans, how it how it changes. 
And mm-hmm. isn't it sort of the, the, the size of the animal and sleep? Mm-hmm. Is that in the yeah. same people? I can quite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the size of your brain, um, and we, we studied sleep records from several different species uh, and as well as humans across the lifespan and other species um, that other people came up with the data. We just reanalyzed it and um, we reanalyzed it in relation to brain metabolism and the things that we, the events that we knew were happening during development, um, synaptogenesis, the creation of synapses between neurons um, and synaptic pruning and um, yeah, and just basically how fast the brain, how much energy the brain is expending in order to do what it does. So, um, so yeah, the lessons that we learned, there have been other great studies showing that sleep was or was not related to metabolism across species and sleep changed across um, development. So ontogeny and phylogeny sleep changes. But this paper sort of unites all of those studies under a common um, set of calculations, which really show that that the function of sleep probably changes from the time when we're early and developing in our brain. The overall main function of sleep um, probably changes from the time we're before we're about two and a half or three years old to afterward. And in those first three years, any developmental um, psychologist or neuroscientist will tell you that our brain is really forming those schema and figuring out, you know, how to learn and, you know, who our parents are and, you know, how to walk and how to talk and what our language is versus all the other languages and, um, you know, what parts of our nervous system that we're born with. We were born with a well-connected brain that could really encode almost anything. Um, we need to prune away a lot of that as we develop because, for example, if you're born um, without the ability to see, you your other areas of your senses will need to be able to take over all that brain space that would otherwise be devoted to vision, right? We don't want to just waste all that brain space. We want to use it for the other senses. And, um, and so our brain rewires uh, based on the experiences into which we were born, and those first three years are critical for that. They're also critical for language learning, um, and sets us up for ability to do well in school for the rest of our lives, emotionally, how we relate to others, what happens to us in those first three years, how our parents relate to us, whether or not our needs are met, um, how loved we are, all of that sets us up for the rest of our lives. So sleep in those first three years is really critical because sleep is the time when we are pruning away things that are no longer necessary to be to be encoded. So we're born with kind of a omnipotent brain that gets specialized and and adapted to the environment in which we learn uh, and when we, in which we're born and then so sleep is the time when that happens and then after we're about two and a half or three years old we switch into a mode where we are fitting the things that we learn into those schemas so it's not like so REM sleep and that transition to REM sleep spindle state are the important times for pruning away things that are not important You'll need that for the rest of your life because things will change, but you might need it less than you needed it in those first three years. And what takes over to be more important is maintaining those synapses that you've now um, decided you need to keep. And, um, and so cleaning away things that build up as we are um, 
interacting with our world. And that's slow wave sleep. That's the slow wave sleep state. Yeah, I, this is not the paper, Gina. I want to get your perspective on this. You know, so it has a lot of policy implications, right? So we know that the first three years are significantly important for a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, and the return to society to, to really investing um, in those three years mm -hmm. are close to infinite. You know, so I mean, you can think of all sorts of things like crime, IQ, Mm -hmm. uh, tax taxes society will get let's just call it taxes you know for for the rest of that baby's life yeah. um there's so many things that society could influence yes. in the first three years yes. by investing very little yes. in those first three years right yeah but it doesn't look like we have figured it out <laughs> no i don't think we have and one of the things that we have not done is um, trained parents how to parent because it is parents who are the most time with the th babies the first three years. Um, it doesn't matter if the parent is biological or not. It's just whoever is spending the caretakers. Those people need to be trained on what to do and what not to do. How to set your baby up for a, a lifetime of emotional health versus um, disability. And um, so we need to spend a lot more time training parents how to parent. We'd spend a lot more time teaching people how to drive a car than we do and how to make a person, you know. Um, so I totally agree with you there. Yeah, making a person is probably much more complex than driving the car. But we, <laughs> we spend nothing, almost nothing there. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to finish up with your, the latest paper, Shining a Light on the Mechanisms of Sleep for memory consolidation. Um, so you say paper will use all optogenetic studies that directly test various sleep states, trait mm -hmm. and circuit level activity, profiles for the consolidation of different learning tasks, and recent findings inhibiting and exciting neurons involved either in the production of sleep states or in the encoding and consolidation of memories reveal sleep states and traits that are essential for memory. We talked a bit about this. so. Um, just to put this in a more detailed context, you, you talk about REM sleep, non-REM sleep, NREM, mm -hmm. and the N2 transition to REM. Mm -hmm. And so sleep, sleeping is not just sleeping, right? Sleeping is, is yeah. very different, different types of things, isn't it? Yeah, lots of different things. And your brain is busy doing what it needs to do the whole time. So this is one of the reasons why we shouldn't sleep deprive ourselves is because um, really important work is going on. You know, it's not like you're just leaning and loafing and not doing anything. You're really, uh, you look at a teenager sleeping in on the weekends and you don't want to say they're lazy because in fact their brain is doing really important things during yeah. that sleep state. <laughs> not for the teenager, but most other people, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, teenagers, there's a lot going on in their brain. They're still changing quite a bit um, prefrontal yeah. cortex is forming and they need just as much sleep as preteens um, but there there's a whole host of environmental and physiological factors that pushes it push their sleep a little later into the night and and into the day so um, it really is good for school districts to delay start times for teenagers because um, there, there's a whole host of factors that push their bedtime to later. And then if you keep the same 
school time, then they're getting less sleep. And sleep deprivation is really, uh, I think, uh, uh, we know it's a bad thing for emotional control and for and for learning. So. So where do you stand on this sort of, you know, it has become quite fashionable to get power sleep, you know, like 20 minutes sleep <laughs> in the afternoon. Uh, I think this is Spanish had figured this yeah. out a long time ago. I um, actually think, yeah, go ahead. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, um, I think naps are fine. And there are people who hate to nap because they always wake up really feeling bad and they don't get anything out of it. And I'd say, don't nap then. If you don't like it and doesn't do anything for you, don't do it. There was a great study, series of studies by Sarah Mednick that shows a nap. It can be as good as an entire night for consolidating your memories. But she also found later that those who do not nap ever because they hate it, um, nap is not as good as a whole night for them. It doesn't do anything for them. And in fact, makes them feel worse. So um, follow your body. I think if your body says take a nap, take a nap. Um, the only thing I would caution against is taking a nap too late in the day, because for example, if you take a nap at 5 p.m. and you won't expect to go to bed at 10, well, that nap, if it's long enough, especially can really um, reduce your homeostatic pressure to sleep so that at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. or 12 p.m., you don't have enough steam built up to force you to get into that sleep state. So it might disturb you for the rest of the night. And then you might get into a weird sleep waking thing that's outside of the um, normal circadian rhythm cycle. So you want things, timing is everything. <laughs> it really is. So um, timing of a nap, I would say earlier is better in the day. So if right after lunch, you feel like you need to consolidate all those things you learned in the morning. You're in college, you need to take a nap, go for it. I think it could be as good as a, an entire nap for consolidating things. And 20 minutes, the cool and magical thing about 20 minutes is that it's not long enough to get into that deep, slow sleep of, that cleans your brain, but it is long enough to um, to what has been shown as the adenosine, which builds up um, as ATP is broken down when we're, our brains are active, adenosine triphosphate is the, um, the power structure, the fuel for our, for our brains, for all of our cells. And um, it breaks down as we continually use our brains to adenosine diphosphate, then monophosphate, and then adenosine. And so that levels of adenosine build and build and build in our brain the longer we're awake. So what happens in the first 20 minutes of sleep is adenosine somehow gets beautifully transitioned back to ATP. So it, it, in terms of a power nap, it literally is a time to rebuild the power in, um, in our brains and all over our bodies. So it's, it's really a neat thing. Um, the other thing about adenosine and, uh, is that that is the neurotransmitter, that's the, the, the substance, it's not really a neurotransmitter, um, but it's the substance that is blocked when you drink caffeine. So coffee, tea, whatever has caffeine in it, the receptors for adenosine are blocked. So it, you can fool your brain into thinking that you've had just wake, woken up from a power nap because the receptors are blocked and can't see all the adenosine still swimming around your brain. But coffee can't do what sleep can do, and that is convert adenosine into ATP. So it can't restore... The power needed it just fools your brain into thinking you're refreshed <laughs> oh that's beautiful so so if i understand this correctly gina so if i think about sort of a two by two matrix um some people benefit from naps 
-hmm. and apparently some people don't, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever the reasons are. But on the y-axis, is it a function of how much information is coming in? So, so you talked about students, for example. Um, do students benefit from a nap more than, let's say, 60-year-old who, mm. who, you know, not, not a lot of information is coming in? Well, so that's the thing. Adenosine builds up during wakefulness no matter what you're doing. <laughs> so it's just the, the fact that you're awake it just expends a lot of energy and breaks down a lot of ATP. So um, even if you're just sitting in a rocking chair on your porch, um, you're thinking something. Yeah, you're thinking. <laughs> things are going on. Um, so what intensive learning does is it, it, it increases the homeostatic drive for REM sleep and that transition to REM sleep state. So, um, so we get... Uh, Great studies by Suba Maldada um, have shown that we need and we require and get about 300% as much of that transition to REM with all those sleep spindles. There's also something called P waves, these big glutamatergic surges during uh, after an intensive learning period. And if you block that 300% increase, you get the inability to incorporate that new information to our old schema. We get probably up to 50% more REM sleep time, which is a lot, but it's it's less than 300% more of the transition to REM. But anyway, those things are homeostatically regulated by how much um, how much we are learning. So, but a 60 year old can learn a lot too. So <laughs> a 60 year old can learn a new language and they might, they will need just as much of those other states of sleep as a 20 year old. Yeah. That is good to know. So, um, so in conclusion, Gina, um, th this seems like a, an area that is still um, developing a lot. I mean, we haven't, I mean, we learned a little bit about the brain, but we haven't, we still have a lot, long, long way to go. Yeah. So graduate students uh, getting into this area, I think they benefit a lot, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a hugely important area. Mm. Um, we, we didn't talk about this in this one, but uh, I suspect sleep also has some uh, connections to a lot of the neurodegenerative diseases, perhaps yes. um, Alzheimer's, and uh, we are all, you know, kind of uh, living longer and uh, expect to have some neurodegenerative disease in the future. And so there seems to be a lot here that students could could really um, get into, right? Oh, there's tons of mysteries left and really exciting time to be getting into neuroscience and to sleep research because the there are uh, the people, the generation that is starting to retire now have laid a fantastic foundation, but they have not solved it <laughs> and they haven't figured it all out yet. It's just a great foundation on which we can all, you know, build to find the answers to these really important questions. Alzheimer's is one of them. Parkinson's. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Gina. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
Gina, uh, if you're still on, you can you can. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.